This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook is all about building towards a greater tomorrow. So I asked John Lax where he sees Facebook going into the future. We are going to continue to try to accomplish the mission of this company, which is to create a more open and connected world. And I think that that's what the future is. And anything we can do to do that, so whether we are helping people connect using new technologies like Oculus, or whether that is giving you new tools to express yourself to your friends uh, and to your family, that's what the future looks like here. While I don't know specifically what we'll be doing, because we try to figure that out every day, I know whatever we do will be to help make the world more open and connected. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Bandcamp is looking for a designer and the New York Times is looking for a freelance product designer. We also have job listings from indeed.com. So head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply it to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts when there are new positions added to the job board. You'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just have three quick things. First off, and I've mentioned this before this month, but we are currently featured on iTunes for February for Black History Month as part of a campaign that iTunes is running called The Black Experience. So if you go to iTunes and go to podcasts, or if you pull up the podcast app, you should see the banner there. We're featured in the perspectives and interviews section along with a bunch of other great shows. Big thanks to Apple for that, and big thanks to Barry of Podcast in Color. That is her influence at work. Secondly, don't forget to check out 28 Days of the Web. That is our sister site where we showcase a different black designer or developer in February in conjunction with and in celebration of Black History Month. This is our fourth year running it and we recognize well over 100 designers and developers. So make sure you go check that out, 28daysoftheweb.com or you can follow Revision Path on Instagram or on Facebook for daily updates. And lastly, we're putting together a special episode this month to commemorate our fourth anniversary, and you can be a part of it. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for details on that. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send email newsletters, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for free. Sign up at MailChimp.com. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and that's where Hover comes in. Choose your domain from the hundreds of extensions out there and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you can save an additional 10% off your purchase. We have a new iTunes review here. This is from Carol Hart, and it's titled, Well Done. Here's the review. 
I have been listening to this podcast over several years. Maurice has done an impressive job of identifying and highlighting black designers. His thoughtful questions and conversations help focus on the many different paths that black designers have taken to get to their current level of success or expertise. In addition, his probing queries help point out how design can expand the worldview of the creative, the client, and the black community. Thanks, Maurice. Thank you, Carol Hart, for that really wonderful review. Again, for all of you, if you subscribe to us on iTunes or on Stitcher or on SoundCloud, leave us a rating and a review. I'll read it right here on the show. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still at a new record high of 43 patrons for a combined total of $272 per month. Again, thanks to all of you that have pledged your support and your appreciation for the show through Patreon. Really does mean a lot. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we've had on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes and free Revision Path goodies. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 a month and it's a great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now for this week's interview. We're keeping things rolling in Philly with this week's guest, design strategist and hybrid thinker, Natalie Nixon. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Natalie Nixon. I am a professor at Philadelphia University where I'm the founding director of the Strategic Design MBA program. And I also have a consultancy um, called Figure Eight Thinking where I help organizations with everything from change management to integrating design thinking into leadership, as well as ideation and strategic planning. So that's what I do. Very cool. Let's talk about that strategic design MBA program. Uh, We've had someone on the show before, Ben Lindo, who actually has went through the program. You're familiar with Ben. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what the program is and why it's important? Sure. So so Ben is an alumnus of the Strategic Design MBA program. He was a member of, of our very first cohort, and he, as you know, is an industrial designer. Mm-hmm. And we tagged uh, the program um, the, the MBA for Hybrid Thinkers, and I launched the Strategic Design MBA program, or the SDMBA in January of 2013, the impetus to start this program really was to see how we might creatively disrupt graduate business education. I actually do not have an MBA, and the, the reason for that is because I never, I never found an MBA program when I was looking for one when I was in my late 20s that spoke to me, that resonated with me. I have a very loopy background in anthropology and fashion and uh, the MBA programs, the traditional model of MBA programs just uh, didn't speak to me. They seem to be heavily quant driven and um, just not for me at the time. So I had just completed my PhD in design management probably around 2010 is when I completed that degree. And I was so inspired and enthusiastic by this whole world of design thinking that I thought it was an amazing opportunity for our university, for Philadelphia University, to do something in this space. Because while design thinking is very novel in the United States, in the UK and Europe, 
so I actually earned my PhD from the University of Westminster in London. So I was really familiar with the ways that companies and organizations and governments and policy integrated design thinking in, in Europe and the UK. It, it was not as novel and even in Asia and parts of South America. So um, there was a huge opportunity for us as a university to really do something unique and special and different and to have a very integrative way to build strategy and learn about organizational design and marketing and branding and, and financial operations. So that was the impetus for the program. Um, it was, it's always been my intention that the program be very integrative, as I said, in its model. So that's reflected by you and the faculty. The faculty are both uh, traditional academics as well as practitioners. I thought it was really important that, that students see uh, multiple perspectives examining issues um, we use a studio model of education so that whenever possible, we're big proponents of show me, don't tell me. So there's a lot of doodling. Our classrooms sound noisy. Uh, there's, um, and my work, I view my work as a professor much more as a coach and a provocateur. And so there's a lot that we borrow from the design studio design model in education and we apply it in this MBA context. And all of our grad students are working professionals. They're all working full-time while they're earning their MBA. And they are amazingly diverse. They're coming from healthcare, finance, uh, insurance, <clears throat> design, education, nonprofit sector. And that really makes the classroom discussions and their input into projects really cool. Yeah, it sounds like it's very diverse because, you know, Ben, as you mentioned, is a industrial designer. And like you said, there can be people that come from even non-design fields into this. Um, what do you feel those that come into it that aren't designers are getting out of the program? Because design thinking is essentially a problem-solving process, they, to a person, experience a very mind-expanding way of going back to their work on Monday. And through the course of the 22-month-long program, they really evolve in where they see themselves in the world and their approach to, to their work. So the attraction to non-designers is that they finally found a program that allows them to plug and play in both using, and this is a false dichotomy, but you know, their left brain, right brain mm -hmm. um, thinking. And so in our, in our work, we value the analytical quantitative metrics driven approaches but we think they are enhanced when they are integrated with empathy, intuition, um, creativity, qualitative research methods. And that's really um, what makes this program special. Um, they, there, are, um, there are two other really wonderful design MBA programs in the United States. One is at the Institute of Design in Chicago and the other is at California College of Art in San Francisco. Um, and you will find some uh, uh, strategic design uh, programs, for example, at New School Parsons in New York City. There's a, also a kind of a joint design MBA at uh, Johns Hopkins and Micah Maryland Institute of Contemporary Art. Um, but what I think we do well is we really integrate those those two paradigms throughout the coursework. Some programs you'll find you'll you know the design work is on one side and the the business work is, is somewhere else, and it's, it's been very important to me that, that it's it's very integrative in the curriculum. From your perspective of being a design educator, what do you think design graduates kind of really want from 
the industry today? I mean, besides a job, but what do you what do you think they want from the industry once they graduate? Well, I think from the design industry, um, they're I think they're actually interested in seeing how how established design companies are pushing the application of design. Um, our graduate students go on to either start innovation centers or design strategy competencies within their companies. Cause as I said, they're already working full time. Uh-huh. Um, some go on to switch careers totally and they, they move on to work in design strategy types of companies. Um, but I, you know, I, I think in our case, they, they really are looking for design to have a greater voice in organizations and for design to have really a seat at the table. And so you are starting to see more forward-thinking companies could commit and invest in that. How did you first get started with this program at Philadelphia University? Well, I've been a professor for 15 years at Philadelphia University, and I naively decided to earn my PhD while working full-time. <laughs> Oh, wow. And uh, because I did that in, um, excuse me, because I did that in the field of design management and specifically in service design, I just got in completely excited, enthusiastic about the the potential to to carve out some sort of curriculum at Philadelphia University. So that's how I got started. It was really through my own personal uh, development, professional development by up in the ante in my own life and, and earning a PhD in this space, in this field, and saw an opportunity to bring it to a mid-Atlantic located university. So that so for me, it started from the personal and how excited I was about the what I was learning and how I was how I was being being able to apply this in my own consulting work and and wanted to to kind of spread that to to broader broader audience. Now, you literally wrote the book on strategic design. You're the author of a book. It's called Strategic Design Thinking, Innovation in Products, Services, Experiences, and Beyond. So I have two questions. First question, why specifically is strategic design important? And two, what was sort of your inspiration behind writing the book? So strategic design is important because companies organizations, whether you're working in the nonprofit space, creative economy, um, traditional companies, we all have to compete and survive in what are called VUCA environments, environments that are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And and that actually, that mnemonic actually came from our military when we first entered Afghanistan many years ago. And for obvious reasons, the terrain was volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And corporate America started to adopt that mnemonic. Hmm. But the reason, so the reason why strategic design matters and is relevant and is is a, is a really critical toolkit, tool in your toolkit, is because when you have to compete in ambiguous, complex environments, you begin to very quickly understand you need a bit more than a SWOT analysis to get to the innovative insight, to get to the strategy. And one of the things that design thinking over time, the more you practice it and hone it and use it, is that it, it equips you to have a mindset where you get much more comfortable with ambiguity. And my my perspective has always been, why do we teach in teach frameworks and models that have you know boxes and arrows 
when no one's day looks like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what I love about design strategy is, is that it allows us to anticipate multiple scenarios and multiple futures, starting with the people who are buying our stuff, who are buying our services, our products, our experiences, et cetera. And um, there, it, it, one of the things I, I, I was so was so cool to me to learn in the process of, of completing my PhD is when you do a PhD, there's a, there's a component of that research called a, a lit review um, because you have to understand what's come before so you can really prove that what you've researched is, is so unique. And so I had to do a lot of reading of academic articles and journal articles about, um, you know, services and, and business and business and design and, and kind of understand the historical context for that. And what was fascinating to me is that when you read through uh, academic business research papers, up in, there's a postmodern moment that happens in like the early 80s, late 70s, where up until, up until that point in time, there's this um, tone in the academic articles that's very scientific. So there are hypotheses that are presented, you know, H1, H2, and the authors go about the, the, the process of, you know, either supporting, refuting, you know, certain hypotheses. And it really reads like a, a scientific journal article. And then all of a sudden there's something that happens in the 70s, 80s, where there's more qualitative research methods. And it's almost as if we've realized that markets are made up of human beings hmm. <laughs> and humans are imperfect. They're inconsistent. They are not predictive. And so there's all of a sudden this opening and an allowance for much more fluid ways to research and much more fluid ways to understand organizational behavior and market opportunities, et cetera. So that's another reason why design strategy is important because it starts with design, it, it has design thinking at its core and it starts with empathy. It starts with this, this acceptance that if we, um, understand the the needs of the people who are buying our products and services we will drive profitability efficiency productivity and, and quality control so um that's that that's the reason why it matters um the inspiration to me for the book was to have some sort of uh, contribution in the literature that was hybrid so if you if you read the book you'll see that I'm the editor. I authored the chapter on service design. It was really important to me that we get some kind of theoretical context about design thinking, where it comes from. Um, but the authors are a, a, a nice hybrid mix. Some are, are traditional academics and really no theory and researchers, and others are practitioners. And and I so I wanted um, a book that that would be helpful to a diverse range of students. Um, and practitioners who wanted to understand why does this stuff matter? How could I apply it to my own work? And so because it is published by an academic press, Bloomsbury Publishers, there are um, prompts and questions at the end of each chapter to really prod you and help you think through what you've just read. So the, the real impetus and catalyst for, for writing the book was to, to have my own contribution um, in the, in the, in the, in the, you know, growing conversation about design, design thinking and why it matters, why it's relevant. And what's been the feedback so far from the book? It's been really great. Um, the, the coolest thing that's happened is that it's been translated into Chinese and that was really amazing. Um, I actually Skyped with that, 
uh, translator uh, last week. Um, and so it's going to be published uh, probably by March. It should be, it should be in print and available, but that, that's, um, that, that's saying something I would say. I mean, that China, China is a huge market. It's, we now understand that the creative economy in China is a real thing. It's not just a manufacturing base and, um, it's become a much more vertically integrated economy where, you know, both manufacturing services and design are really essential there. So to have, um, it now available to that market is I'm really grateful for that and really excited to see how that will, will lead to the taking off anymore. So that's been really great. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Now having a PhD in, uh, in design management specifically. Yes. In design management, that kind of puts you at uh, a rare echelon of designers. I think in general, um, to you, what does it mean to be a black woman in this industry at that level? Uh, <laughs> uh, it means a lot because uh, there are not a lot of us, um, unfortunately. So, you know, um, at the university where I teach, I'm one of two full-time black faculty. Um, and there's a, there's a bit of a crazy cycle that happens when we're talking about how do we get more people of color in higher ed and academia, it's kind of human nature that we are drawn to focus on and develop ourselves in areas where we see ourselves reflected because it becomes much more easy for it to be aspirational. You, you kind of say, maybe I too could do X, Y, Z. So it means a lot to me because first I will say that I'm a nerd, I'm a geek and I love ideas. That's why I love to teach. I love to um, push and stretch ideas. And more importantly, I like to understand and observe and see how what other people do with those ideas. And um, to be a, a black intellectual is a pretty uh, radical stance and position, especially if you understand the history of black intellectual pursuits. I mean, I, I kind of would go back to Frederick Douglass and Phyllis Wheatley and, 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 you know, those, those amazing African-Americans. So it's, um, it means a lot because it's, it, I, I think I have a voice and perspective that's really important for, for my colleagues, for, for academia. And I, I then think that it translates into hopefully something inspirational for, for students of color who can now, um, if they weren't aware of the field, they might start to be, become more curious about it because they just, they, they just see someone who might look a little bit more like them and they, they, um, you know, they, they will be more, um, likely to pursue it. Mm -hmm. And, um, diversity in design is really essential because, uh, designers get, I've written about this in one of my ink.com blogs, but designers get to shape the way we navigate this world. And they do that through everything from design and signage for wayfinding to designing buildings that, uh, protect us and, and garments that, uh, that also protect us from the element elements, but also signify status and self-worth, et cetera. So um, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. And that, that fundamentally means that di designers are change agents. So we need um, diversity in design because the more diverse the inputs, the more innovative the outputs. And um, so, yeah, it, it does mean a lot to me to, 
and and it was darn hard to earn a PhD, especially while working full time. So I'm I'm it's it's a it's an achievement that I I'm really grateful for and 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 proud of myself that I was able to get through with the help of my my husband and my family. So yeah, I can only imagine. So definitely, my hat goes off to you for doing that. Thanks. Now you're originally from Philadelphia, is that right? Yes. Now, I mentioned this before we recorded, but we had another Philly designer on the show recently, Ron Tinsley, and he grew up in North Philadelphia, I believe is what he told me. And I want to ask you the same question that I asked him. Being from Philadelphia, born here, growing up here, going to school there, how have you seen the city change and has that sort of affected your work as a designer? Well, Philly is definitely going, it's on the tip of a renaissance right now. And it is, there's a lot of gentrification happening. Um, So as always, that's the good news, bad news, because it means, you know, property values are starting to go up, but we don't have any examples in the United States of, of gentrification where there's still socioeconomic diversity. So I've become much more interested in, in design thinking being applied for social innovation and social impact work and um, more more business schools and actually that's being driven by the students more 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 students and are, are very much interested in applying um, their learning to you know doing good and doing well so you know it's it's a good thing to make money because money can lead to um, influence and freedom and the ability to have options. Um, and so, so I'm really encouraged by the way I see there, there is a, there is a nice movement in Philadelphia of people who are doing really cool work and social impact, dual impact investing. Um, and that, that, that definitely I would say is driven by a lot. We we are a knowledge industry town. So there's a lot of colleges and universities here. So, so the, the, the graduate students and, and, and even undergraduate students are really driving that value. How would you describe Philly's design scene? Oh, it's it's really vibrant. Um, I will say people are very excited to learn more about design thinking, but the design thinking community is is not as cohesive, I would say, as the traditional design community is in Philadelphia. Um, so a couple of, so Philly in Philly we have a, a really wonderful festival in the fall called Design Philadelphia, and a couple of years ago I led a um, an unconference on service design, and it was wonderful because it really brought together an amazing group of people from all sectors and around the city of Philly who um, are very interested in learning service design and applying it. So that was very encouraging to me. Um, I think like so many other things, people are are just kind of swamped with so much work and it's just a matter of like who can take the leadership on it. Um, But, you know, we have, we have an amazing arts and culture scene in Philadelphia and that, um, so it's, it's no, it's no surprise that, that our design community is pretty vibrant. Like for example, the Philadelphia Museum of Art has, a group called Colab, which looks specifically at the design collection at the Philippine Museum of Art, and they have different events throughout the year. Um, there are um, the, the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, has has a lot of events that kind of 
highlight traditional design. Um, and and there's some, there's some other meetups that happen. So, um, it's, it's a really wonderful place to be as a designer. Let's kind of go back earlier. You mentioned that you had, uh, this, this, you have this background in anthropology and in fashion, which is, I mean, that's a very eclectic mix, you know, for me, I know <laughs> I didn't go to design school. My background is actually in math and, and telecommunications. So people are always like, oh, it's so interesting that you are a designer and didn't go to design school. So I'm interested to hear from you. Like, wh- where was that? Where did that spark come from? Starting off working in anthropology and then doing fashion and then now becoming, you know, kind of more into the realm of design and design thinking and strategic design. Well, it. You know, in a lot of ways, it came from my mom. My mom um, is an artist. She was a weaver, textile fiber artist, and taught me and my sister how to sew when we were girls. Like, age eight, I was starting to sew. And so my foray into fashion happened out of need. I was living in New York City. I wasn't making a lot of money. This was right after college. I lived in New York for a few years. And um, I couldn't afford to buy all the pretty frocks that I saw in the windows. So I started sewing all of my clothing and my friends started saying, Nat, you should sell this stuff. This is really cool. This is awesome. And I would say, nah, I, I don't know. I, it's just stuff I make because I can't afford to buy anything. They said, no, <laughs> I would buy that. You should start selling this. And so I, long story short, I, I garnered up the courage to, to start a hat design business. It's called Nat's Hats. And I did that because I figured hats are fun and it's low cost of materials. And that really gave me the bug for business. And after, at that time I was also, um, there's a chapter of my life where I was a high school, middle school English teacher. So I had teaching experience. I had gotten the bug for business. Um, in my late twenties, I left the field of teaching and, um, I entered a master's of science program in global textile marketing that took me to Israel for a part, portion of my time for my studies and to Germany. And after graduating from that program, my master's of science in global textile marketing, where I was really learning the fully integrated um, system of fashion, and people have no idea how complex the fashion industry is. People really romanticize it and, and only understand, um, maybe they kind of understand runway, and only about 2% of the industry is sexy. Um, I was hired by a global fashion sourcing firm, a division of the limited brands. And that took me to live and work in Sri Lanka and Colombo and Porto, Portugal. And there I, I was really focused on the Victoria's Secret account. So there's a lot of bras and panties being made around the world. And um, in sourcing, you interface with the design team, the buyers, the mills, the factories, the logistics agents. And it was an amazing experience. Well, by then I realized I kind of missed teaching. Um, and through a series of informational interviews, I got an offer to come to Philip University and teach in the fashion management program. So um, my my interest in design has been both hands-on and um, learning as I go um, through through some formal training. Um, so that that's that's kind of how I how I got to design. And then I've already talked about how I learned and got fell in love with design thinking, design strategy through my, through my doctoral studies. Nat's hats. I like that. (laughs) That's a nice thing. That's funny you mentioned that. My, my grandmother was a seamstress. My mother was a seamstress and they taught me how to sew. Like they taught me how to do like cross stitch and 
like backs, you know, like basic stitching stuff. And eventually when I got older, I was old enough to learn how to operate the, they had this big sewing machine with the, with the foot pedal and the, mm-hmm. the big wheel that you have to turn and everything. Um, right. I didn't get, a, I, I mean, I didn't start, I didn't go the route you did with like starting, starting hats. I just used it. I, it's funny when I was in college, I basically just made little pocket change doing alterations and hems and stuff like that. Cause nobody, I mean, I went to Morehouse, I went to an all male college and nobody knew how to do that stuff. You know, they, something gets ripped. They're like, Oh, well, let me just buy another one. I'm like, well, if you give me five, $10, I'll do it. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So I have a little, little pocket change to do something like that. Um, I, I watched some of your, your uh, presentations. Uh, there's one in particular that you've given out a bunch of places, but the one that I saw was with TEDx Philadelphia in 2014. And you're talking about uh, these different kind of rules for improvising at work. There's seven rules, I believe. And one of the rules is about embracing failure. Yes. Um, can you speak a little bit on that and why that's important? Sure. So that talk was an an amazing opportunity. First of all, it was just an incredible experience in large part because the audience was so awesome. They were so supportive. And while I've spoken, I, but at that, up to that point in my, in my career, I'd done a lot of public speaking in large part because I'm a professor, but there's something about it being TEDx that was (laughs) very nerve wracking. So uh, but it was a really amazing experience and it was an opportunity for me to convert my doctoral dissertation into plain English and to share what I had researched and studied. So um, I I studied the ways that the, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel designs experiential services. And I did that by using a heuristic from jazz music. And one of the things I talk about and I mentioned in the talk is that my, my father was a big jazz head and I grew up in a home where I, I constantly heard jazz music, jazz from my father and actually classical from my mom. So it was, it's in my pores. And um, so I was just ecstatic when I realized there's a whole body of literature that looks at improvisational organizations. And then there's a subset of that literature that uses jazz music as a framework to study those organizations. So it was, it was a really kind of nice personal professional connection there in my research. So I, 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 I mapped that work based on um, heuristic by um, an academic named Frank Barrett, uh, who actually is also a jazz musician. He's based out, I believe in San Diego. And he talked about seven, he kind of highlighted and pulled out, teased out seven principles of jazz improvisation that we can see um either present in, in improvisational organizations or it could be applied and, and try to, to be cultivated to make organizations more improvisational. And, and, and an improvisational system is actually a complex system. So jazz is a complex system that, which comes, that stems directly from chaos theory. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the, the principles of Frank Barrett's, you know, seven principles of jazz and improvisation that you can map to organizations is embracing mistakes. So, if you've ever been to a jazz performance, or if you understand anything about the way jazz improv works, there really aren't any mistakes. So any mistake that that we might on the outside consider any 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 shift or change that we on the outside might think is a mistake, 
jazz musicians look at as an opportunity. So whether it's someone accidentally played the wrong note or they accidentally shifted the key or uh, they came in when the other musician is quite expecting them to, um, there is a wonderful adaptive quality that jazz musicians have to be, instead of being reactionary, they adapt and they, and they respond to build on what was just offered. So that's where that idea of embracing mistakes can really be translated to, you know, how do we work in organizations and how do we build a culture of that really kind of fosters and accepts experimentation rather than penalizes people when they've made mistakes? Because jazz proves that those you know, air quotes, wrong turns actually can lead can maybe often are some happy accidents that lead to some really amazing um, insights. So that that was the purpose of, of that point in the talk. I want to switch gears here kind of a little bit just to go kind of more into, you know, some personal things here. I know you said that the journey to getting your PhD was extremely tough. I can totally understand that. Who are some of the mentors that you've had that have helped you out along the way? Ah, uh, well, a, ma- a major mentor who helped me out through that 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 period was my my principal advisor, Allison Reeple, who is a professor of management at the University of Westminster. And um, I think mainly because Allison is just an incredible teacher, she uh, was really tough on me. So I would I would you know slave and sweat over <laughs> sending off like fifteen pages for her to review. And she sometimes would return it with like seven of those 15 pages completely mocked up. And in the margins, she would write, so, well, in Allison's British, it was, so what? And she would write <laughs> over and over and over. Or she would have a little abbreviation HTF, which was which was her abbreviation for hostage to fortune, which uh, in Allison's terms meant that um, I was really going down a pathway with this idea that um, was not really substantiated either yet by my own research or or anything really. So um, she was an incredible mentor because she um, believed in me and, and, and encouraged me in my thought process and my ideas. And she also helped me to really high standards, which ultimately has made me um, a, a, an excellent researcher, writer, um, you know, finishing a PhD has less to do with how smart you are and everything to do with humility and project management because it's a project that you have to manage and you have to reverse engineer it and, and, and deconstruct all the components of it and you literally have to put one foot in front of the other and do the next thing, do the next and then go back, revise and then you know pivot, shift and move forward again. And so um, she's the she's the main person who really comes to my mind when I think about you know that period and and who was a mentor. Um, in terms of my support team, it was definitely my husband, John. And John and I actually met and then got married about a year into my starting the PhD process. So he had to live with um, <laughs> my uh, not being able to go out to the movies or not <laughs> be able to do this uh, with my stepdaughter, Sid, because I just, I couldn't, I, I mean, I had to finish the darn thing. And I'll, I should also mention, in case anyone's curious, that the doctoral system in the UK is very different than the doctoral system process in the USA. And one of the major differences is that it's structured much more like an independent study. 
which means that's the good news, bad news. It really means you have enough rope to either fly or hang yourself. And they, they give you a deadline. So you must finish. In my case, I had to finish it within three to four years or else the clock would start over. And you'll find in the States, people are often working on a PhD for five, six, 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, that that kind of hard deadline was actually very attractive to me because I really did not want an experience where it was kind of just looming over me constantly. What keeps you motivated with the work that you're doing? Like what's, what's the, the thing that drives you? I think I'm just I'm just really motivated with the with the opportunity to create something new, and that's one of the things I, I have. As you know, I've, I've had I've bounced around to, to different areas and sectors, which maybe at the time not everyone could understand why why I was doing what I was doing. In hindsight, it completely makes sense because I, I I received an amazing gift from my parents when I was a sophomore in college. I called home crying because I had to declare my major. In a couple of weeks, you know, first world problems, <laughs> and I and I said I don't know what I'm going to major in. I don't want to disappoint you. I want to make sure I get a really good job when I graduate. You know, you sacrifice so much for education, and finally, both my parents said, "Well, what are you enjoying?" And so I started listing the areas I was enjoying, which were anthropology, Africana studies, and, and and they said, "That's what you should study." And I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> they said, <laughs> "They said." Yeah, I, I, so I was like, okay, so it's you're okay if I major in anthropology and maybe uh, double it up with African studies. They were like, yeah. And my father said to me, if you study what you love, opportunities will come to you, and you'll mm-hmm. find yourself in a position where you have to turn away opportunities. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. And it was like a load lifted off me. I have literally followed that gift and that advice for forever since then. And so what motivates me are the opportunities to create, to follow my heart, to, 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 you know, one of the things I loved about my work in the SDMB program was I was, I was, I was able to start something. And what, it, what, it, what I learned from, from this experience is that I can start something from nothing that um, brings meaning to people's lives and generates revenue, which is important. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, you know, that, 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 that is meaningful to me. So, um, I, I love, I love opportunities where I can create, um, where I can, I can feed my intellectual capacity, um, and where I can work with people. So that, that, that's what motivates me. What's a lesson that you've learned before that you now know is wrong? Like something that maybe you were told earlier in your career or earlier in school, what's, what's that, particular lesson that you now know is not true and that's a wonderful question first thing that popped into my head i don't it's probably not quite the answer you're looking for but maybe i can kind of extend it it's kind of a narrow answer okay i think i can extend it a bit so the re the real reason i studied anthropology is because of an amazing woman amazing black woman named janetta b cole Jeanette B. Cole in the 90s was the president of Spelman College, and she had, she had edited a book called Anthropology for the 90s when I was a sophomore in college. And I was standing in line in the bookstore, loaded down with books. I, I, I registered for Anthro 101 on a fluke because I just needed another course. Mm-hmm. And I'm leafing through the books, wondering how am I going to pay for all these books. My mom told me you better make sure all your professors put everything on reserve because there's no more there's no more funnel of money from here. 
and I'm, I'm standing looking through these books and I turn out, so, it, you know, the cover is a photograph of, of I don't remember, but it's called Anthology for the Nice. I turn over the book and there's a photograph of the editor of this book. And she's a black woman with lip gloss and nail polish. And, um, and I was like, wait a second, she's an anthropologist. <laughs> and the reason why that is significant um, is for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, it stopped me in my tracks with horror that I, who I even, you know, I consider myself a pretty enlightened, smart person. It made me realize that up until that point, I assumed that anthropologists were older white dudes digging in the dirt in African villages. And that horrified me because I was like, oh my gosh, like I thought I was so enlightened and open minded and, and that, but that was the mental model that I had in my head. Um, it also was significant because it, it 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 showed me what I could be, which kind of brings us full circle to you know one of your earlier questions to me, and that put me on a path where I I actually wrote Janetta B Cole, and she wrote me back, and I don't know where that letter is anymore, but I I kept it for a, about a good twenty years after that day because it, it it meant so much to me that she responded, and my letter was simply that you don't know me, I'm this black girl at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and I am now studying anthropology because of you. Because I really didn't know that there were black women who look like us who were in this field. And um, and also, people don't realize that anthropology is much broader than archaeology and linguistics and you know, physical anthropology, cultural anthropology. So um, what I know now is that and, and, and so I'm saying this because I actually thought I knew that I could do anything in this world, but that moment made me realize I actually didn't. Mm-hmm. I actually had put some some uh, boundaries on myself because I just had never seen that representation. So I'm now convinced that we can, in fact, do anything in this world that we put our mind to, <laughs> which I, I did not know at that time. What are you excited about at the moment? Is there anything in particular? Yeah, I, I guess I'm really excited about a few things. I've been I've been twirling around with these ideas around what we can learn from dancers in dance in design. And because I have a background as a dancer, I studied dance since I was four years old. I studied modern dance. And I use my dance education every day of my life. Um, and, and that's a whole other topic, but... Um, I've be, I've become really interested in um, how dance choreographers, for example, in my view, are really systems designers because they have an ability to zoom in, zoom out. They can scale. They can. Uh, they're they're amazing translators. Uh, they translate story through movement. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from that. And I know that there is a, an amazing conference that I hope to attend this May. I think it's May or April. Um, I think it's called dance and design hmm. so that's something i'm really excited about because it, it connects two parts of me in a way that I, that I would love to give more thought and work and attention to and i also am really excited about um you know social impact work and using design uh for good um especially in the united states i think a lot of the time we kind of we, we uh leap over all the opportunities to do social impact work and social innovation work here in the states and we kind of go to um, you know, developing economies, which is important. There's also a lot of 
of work to be done here. So that's also something that excites me. And I'm excited, um, you know, to really grow myself as an entrepreneur and to be, you know, a kind of a scholar entrepreneur. Um, that's, that's something that I really uh, value. I, I, I really, you can probably tell by now, I thrive in hybrid spaces. I really thrive in interdisciplinary spaces. Um, I don't like to have to choose. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm going to continue to try to do that. What do you think you would have done if you never got into design? Maybe I would have gotten to behavioral economics because I think behavioral economics is fascinating. It's 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 like anthropology plus psychology plus you know economics. But it I love I love the work that people like Dan or Ariely do or or um, Thaler does, who's kind of the grandpapa of behavioral e- economics. Because I, I just love that they accept that markets are made up of human beings and they they are accepting and, and curious about um, inconsistencies. And um, I, I'm, I'm not real interested in, in stuff that's trying to make everything fit into a box. So I love, I love things like that. Um, so maybe I would have gone down that route. I think I still would have stayed in the uh, academic space and, and trying to bridge acad- the academy and corporate. That, that also is something that's really interesting is bridging. I think higher ed is, needs, to, is, needs to really be, it is being disrupted. And I think that's a good thing. And I think we need more and more connections between higher ed and business. And that, that's also something that really matters to me. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next, let's say, five years or so? What do you think you'll be working on? Five or six years from now, hopefully my third book. <laughs> Maybe I by then I will have really figured out this scholar entrepreneur thing that that is still kind of budding for me. Um, haven't quite figured it out yet, but working on it. So, yeah, that that's what that's what I would I would like to to be able to say. I've, I've kind of I, can, I would love to be able to say I can give you more real life examples of what how I'm doing that in another six years or so. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Sure. Uh, they can find out a lot about what I think about and what I'm working on um, at figure8thinking.com. And the eight is a number eight. They also can follow me on Twitter at Nat W. Nixon and uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, Natalie Nixon. All right. Sounds good. Well, Natalie Nixon, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really like a lot of what you had to say about uh, design thinking and how it's not only sort of democratized design for a lot of people, but how so many people in other industries can use design thinking. You know, because this is a, a design focused show, we end up kind of attracting people from a bunch of different areas, from tech, from advertising, et cetera. Um, and even with like work that I've done speaking to people, I tell people that we all sort of have some innate level of design within us, like because we've interacted with so many things that are designed, our clothes, our cars, our buildings, et cetera. We know when something is poorly designed, we may not be able to articulate it in, you know, a specific kind of way, but we all have that, that, uh, interaction with design. So in a way we're all designers of some sort but what you're talking about with design thinking and how the work that you're doing with philadelphia university helps so many other people realize that i think is truly truly important work so thank you again for coming on the show i appreciate it thank you for having me i I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share what i do and what i think about 
Thank you so much. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Natalie Nixon and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Natalie and her work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work at Facebook, sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, and even diverse hands for mock-ups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow their sales, recapture business, and make money in their sleep. Who doesn't want that? Did you know that you can now make Facebook ads inside MailChimp and connect them to your MailChimp list? It's a real game changer if you want to really connect with the folks that are subscribed to you. So sign up for a free account today, MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show by bumping us up in those rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show, just like I did with Carol Hart. Also, before you go, I've got one more favor. So, like I said before, we're putting together a special episode this month to commemorate Revision Pass' fourth anniversary, and I want you to be a part of it. This is the last week that you can do this now. I want you to send us a message or a voice note by February 24th, and, you know, tell me what you think about the show, tell me what you think about any of the past guests, you name it. I'll either read or play your message during the episode, which will also have a special guest. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge level started just $1 a month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.